We've been seeing a basic fundamental law that when a man dies, his inheritance is responsible for paying for the sustenance of his young daughters, young unmarried daughters. Um, and But that responsibility of the inheritance to pay for their sustenance is only from land, but not from movables. And that left many young daughters uh, without sustenance. And so various rabbis were trying different ways to uh, permit uh, or even obligate the, in the inheritance to pay from movables. What we're going to see starting now is that actually this is subject to a machloket tanaim in the following baraita. Tano rabanan. Property that has a guarantee, meaning that can be used as a lien for a loan, meaning land. And also property that does not have a guarantee. That means movable objects. You can use them and take them from the inheritance in order to pay for the deceased's wife and for his daughters, according to the B. So there you go. According to the B, the actual letter of the law is you can use both land and movables to pay for the needs of the widow and the orphan daughters. So this is a little complex, we have a lot of cases here. Uh, but what basically saying is that when you have land, then you can take it from daughters for sons. We're talking about a case where, let's say a guy has older daughters, they're, they're adults, meaning above 12 and a half, and he has sons that are kids. So when he dies, the sons who are kids aren't going to be able to take the inheritance because they're kids, and so they can't be responsible over it. And so rather than have an outsider come and be the uh, state manager, that would usually happen, but you have daughters, so the daughters will take the estate and manage it. That's fine, but they can't take it for themselves because eventually when the, when the boys become adults, then with the Betin will come and say, sorry, daughters, now, they're, now the boys have grown up, so they get the estate. So the sons will get the estate. If you have older daughters and younger daughters, well, in that case, the daughters will all inherit equally. But if there's old ones that are adults, they're the ones that are going to be taking care of it in the meantime. And then when the little girls grow up, then the Betin will say, okay, older ones, you have to give the younger ones their share, and they'll all split it uh, equally. Or the same thing if it's all boys, then all the boys get to inherit. But if there's older ones and younger ones, and the older ones take it first, uh, then when the younger ones grow up, the Betin will say, no, you got to split it evenly. Um, good. Now also, if there is a large amount of property, enough that can sustain everybody, that the sons will get their inheritance and, there's, uh, and the daughters can be sustained from it, uh, then we will take, in this case, there are older daughters and younger sons, uh, so now the daughters, they since they were older, they took all the inheritance, at the, all the property at first. Uh, but now that when the sons grow up, the sons are going to take over the property. Uh, so they'll take what they what's due to them as inheritance, even though the daughters will continue to be sustained. 
בנכסים מועטים. But if there is insufficient funds, well then we saw that we prefer, if there's insufficient funds, we sustain the daughters and, we, and the sons will lose out on their inheritance because it's more shameful for daughters to have to go begging than for sons to have to go begging. So we will not extract from the daughters the inheritance and give it to the sons if there is only limited funds. Now all that was not controversial because we were talking about land. Uh, but he has the second statement, Nechasim she'en lahem achareyut, if we're talking about property that's not a guarantee, meaning movable objects, then motzin labanim in habanim labanot in habanot. That is the same that if there are older and younger kids and the older one sees them, then they have to share equally with the younger boys. And the same thing with girls, because they are also, they are going to inherit. And if there are older girls that seize the property, movable objects, then when the sons grow up, they have to give it over to the sons who will inherit. But if the sons take the money and then the daughters come and say, hey, we want to share, they do not get it because this is movable objects and the sons inherit and the daughters do not get sustained by movable objects. So you see that the basic letter of the law we've been assuming this whole time in the previous stories Files Rabbi Shimon ben El Azad against Rabbi Yudah uh, Nasi, who says that the daughters and the sons share equally and do get sustained from movable objects. Now, in general, there's a rule that Halakha files Rabbi Yudah Nasi over any one of his colleagues. And so, therefore, we really should follow the B, and that would be great to help out these orphan daughters. But But this is an exception to the rule, and the halacha has developed that we follow Rabbi Shimon ben Elazad, and daughters do not get sustained by movable objects. Rava said that's the halacha; they can get sustained by land, but not by movable objects. Ben ben panasa, and that's true for uh, the payment of the marriage contract, or for sustenance for the widow and for the daughters, or for livelihood, which we uh, understood to mean to pay for the dowry. All these things are only from land and not, uh, and not, for, the, um, and not for movable objects. Interestingly, even though this is the conclusion of the Gemara in uh, Geonic literature, um, they change it back uh, again, and the halakha, in, in fact, from the geonim, is that movable objects are, can be used, uh, must be used uh, to pay for the livelihood of the daughters. Um, so I, I think we see from the stories that that was the trend from all those stories, and there was even one that said, well, I want to do that, but the other rabbi said, you can't do that because then people will see that and make that the halakha for generations. Well, that's exactly what happened. All right, new mishnah. Lo katav la husband did not write a marriage contract. You know, he's supposed to, you're really not supposed to get married or remain married without a ketubah. But if the man didn't, that doesn't mean he's off the hook. He still has to pay the basic minimum amount of 200 for a betula or 100 for someone who was married already. Because that's a stipulation of the court. And everyone who gets married does so um, based on the conditions that the court sets. So even if he doesn't write write a ketubah, we he still has to pay the basic amounts. Katabla Sadeshave Maneta Hat Matayim Zuz. 
Now, let's say he writes in the Ketubah that um, I'm going to have a lien to pay uh, for the Ketubah from only one field, and that field is worth just 100 zoos. So that when he has to come to pay for it, uh, even if he has a lot of land, uh, the, then the only the, with a small piece of 100 zoos land will serve as a guarantee for the loan. So what he's trying to do is get out of paying the 200, and that way he'll only have to give this land of 100. Uh, so what's the what's the law? It's not right the usual clause that is in all of our Ketubot that says all of the property that I have will be a guarantee for your Ketubah. And that, the one that we use, it even says, says uh, even the shirt off my back uh, with the husband will have to give to pay her Ketubah. So he didn't write all of that. And he's trying to uh, 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 cheat her by not giving her the 200 since the only the small piece of 100 land will be subject to a lien. Chayav, nevertheless, he has to pay the full 200. Uh, so in other words, we ignore that so so the first clause with there's no kituba at all then the bigger chidush is that if there is a kituba and he said yeah i'm going to give you 200 but only 100 that you can collect from land we ignore that and in fact any of his property is subject to um collection shehu tonight betin once again because that's a basic condition of the court now in the, in the standard Ketubah, in uh, times of the Mishnah, it says, if you are taken captive, uh, the husband agrees that I will redeem you um, and, and restore you back to be my wife. Uh, that is a basic obligation of the Ketubah. And even if he doesn't write it in, he still has to redeem her. If, he, if she is married to a Kohen, and then this, the the uh, language is a little different because if a woman who's married to a kohen is uh, uh, get, is is taken captive, we presume that she probably is violated, and even if it's against her will, nevertheless she's no longer permitted to remain married to the kohen. So he does still have to redeem her, but they, then they would not remain married. But it says instead, I, you return to your province. She'll go back to. Uh, her father's house, wherever she lived before. But he still has to redeem her. And even if he didn't write this language, Chayav, Shehu Tanai Betin, because that is, again, a basic stipulation of the court. Now, Nishpet Chayav Diftota. Back to the basic law. Any woman who is taken captive, the man has to redeem her. Let's say a man, his wife is taken captive, and then he says, listen, I don't want to redeem her. Well, uh, what, I have to because I'm married to her? You know what? I'm going to divorce her. Right now, um, here's the get, and here's the payment of the ketubah, and now she has the she has the payout from the ketubah. She can use that to redeem herself, and uh, he's, uh, he's out of the picture. Can he do that? That is not allowed. He has to redeem her from his own money, and then when she comes back, if he still wants to divorce her, that's a different story. He can but he can't use this opportune time to get out of the payment of the ransom. Um, that's case one. Now, this is comparable to a contrast with the second case. In general, if a woman gets sick, the man has to pay for her medical expenses. That's part of the basic sustenance in the ketubah. doesn't include only food. 
it also includes medical care. Amar haregita uchtuvata if a man says his wife gets sick and now he's going to have to pay for these medical bills, he doesn't want to, so he says, all right, I'm out. Here's the get. I'm paying the amount of the ketubah. Now she has her own money and she can use the payout and she will uh, and, and she can uh, sustain and, uh, and pay for the medical bills herself. Rashai, he can do that. Not a very nice thing to do. He's not going to get the award for finest midot, but that is uh, legally permitted. Now the question is, what's the difference between those t- these two cases? How come if he wants to divorce her before paying, the, instead of paying for the uh, ransom, he's not allowed, but for the medical expenses, he is allowed? The difference seems to be what, the, uh, what these are dependent on. The, uh, the, the ransom for captivity, he has to pay in exchange for collecting the fruits of the land that she owns. Now he's collecting that fruit for you know many years because um, she's not uh, she not, doesn't get captive for all that time. And so now he has that saved up. All of a sudden she gets he, she gets taken captive, and now he's going to say, "No, I'm keeping the fruit. I'm not paying the the, cap, the the ransom." So that's not very fair. He's already saving up that money, so he has to use it. On the other hand, medical expenses are part of regular sustenance. And that's in exchange for what she, her wages. So that he's paying all the time. He's paying all of her sustenance or food or clothing and all that. So since that is something that he's anyway paying at all times, now this happens to be uh, an expensive time because she's going to have to pay these medical bills. But if he wants out, he can get out at any time because that money was not uh, saved up. He's spending for sustenance and medical expenses are included in that. All right, that's the Mishnah. Now, in the first clause, we ask Maneh, who would be the author of this Mishnah? Rabbi Meir, he must be Rabbi Meir. Damar, kol apohet libtula mimataim ul almana mimaneh harezo be'ailat zinut. When we said that if a man doesn't write a ketubah, uh, then we assume that he has to pay the ketubah anyway, the 200. Um, that would be Rabbi Meir, because Rabbi Meir says anyone who promises in the ketubah for a betula less than 200, or for an almana less than 100, we consider that uh, that bi'ah that they'll have, uh, that's supposed to be their marriage, to be a promiscuous bi'ah, meaning it's not a good marriage. You are not allowed to stipulate that I'm going to pay less than the required amount. So um, this is not exactly what the Mishnah said, but it's the other side of the same coin. If a man tries to give less and he insists on it, well, then the marriage, either it's not going to be a marriage or it is a marriage and he's going to have to pay that amount anyway. Uh, so that's the point. The Bimeir is, this, this is uh, consistent with what the Bimeir said. The Eid, the Abi Yehuda, and uh, even though it's a little different, it's surely our Mishnah cannot be the other opinion of the Bihuda. Ha'amar, Rasa kotev lebitula shta shamatayim. He kotevet hitkabalti memechamane. As if they both wa- agree then he, the man can write um, uh, for his wife, who's a betula, a ketubah that says, I'll pay you 200. And at the same time, she writes a receipt that says, I received 100 already, even though she didn't receive it. Um, that's a way of him writing a kosher ketubah, and still only, he'll, he'll only have to pay 100 at the end because he has this receipt. So the Buddha says, that's fine. Or if it's Amana and he writes the hundred 
and she also writes a receipt at the same time, even though she didn't actually get any money. She says that she gets 50, so that he'll only have to pay uh, 50 at the end. That is permitted according to the Biuda. So we see, according to the Biuda, a man can stipulate to pay less than the required amount. And that would be against our Mishnah that says if he tries to do that, he'll have to pay it anyway. Um, so for surely our Mishnah cannot be the Biuda. So it seems our Mishnah can only be the Bimeir. So that's all fine. I mean, anonymous Mishnah is the Bimeir anyway. The problem is that it contradicts something else the Bimeir says. Uh, in the next clause, if a man tries to give a guarantee for the his ketubah only and specifies that only one hundred, uh, only a small field that's only worth one hundred will be a guarantee for the ketubah, and you can't take the ketubah from anything else. Um, uh, well, he doesn't say you can't, but he just says that. He doesn't write all of my property as he's supposed to. He has to pay it anyway, and all of his land is uh, is, guarantee, is a guarantee for the loan. At, um, now, that's what the Sefa of our Mishnah says. Whose opinion is that? That would, is consistent with a Biudah who says that when it comes to land, uh, land that's a guarantee, if the scribe doesn't put it in the uh, a, a document let's say a loan document he says here i owe you a hundred dollars and he doesn't he doesn't write in it that your land will be uh will be a guarantee even if he doesn't write it we assume the scribe just made a mistake and left it out it's supposed to be there if he explicitly says none of my land is going to be a guarantee then it's out but if he doesn't write anything at all we assume that it's in so this sefa where he says um, this small field will be a guarantee for the ketubah. And he doesn't write anything about anything else. We assume that that's a scribal error, and all of his land is a guarantee. So the second clause is consistent with Rabbi Yehuda and goes against Rabbi Meir, who, who disagrees on this point. He says that if you skip a, a clause that says, my land is a guarantee for this loan document, we don't assume it's a scribal error. We assume it's on purpose, and the person did not want his uh, land to be uh, have a lien on it. Titnan. Masash chov. We have a Mishnah in Masechet Baba Metziah about someone who finds a promissory note. What should he do with it? Should he return it to the borrower, to the lender, not return it at all? See, if the, if the lender has it, the lender can go to the borrower and say, I have the note, I can collect with it. And if we assume that uh, uh, that the land is, that of the borrower has, has a lien, there's a lien on it, then even if the borrower sold the land in between, he can go and collect it from the seller. So this could have a lot of consequences to both parties and even to a third party who bought the land in the meantime. So the Mishnah there says, if someone who finds such a loan document, if it says in the document that there's a that land will be uh, taken as a guarantee for the loan, then he cannot return it to the lender. Because in that case, if he takes it to Betin, Betin will say, oh, this is a good loan document. And if the borrower doesn't have money, they'll, they'll allow him to go and take the money from the one who bought the land in the meantime. And this would be very unfair to the guy who bought the land because really, the, if the if the payment was already given, 
for the loan, if the loan was already paid, then he should not have to give up that land. Now, we're talking about a case where the borrower would agree that he didn't pay the, pay the loan, even though he did pay the loan. Why would he do that? He has to pay again because he's colluding with the, with the lender and together they'll collect from the land that was sold and then they'll split the, split the land and that way they can both gain from it. So we don't want, we, we do not want the person who bought the land in the meantime to have to suffer. Therefore, if you find a document and there is a lien on land uh, with it, do not give it to the lender. However, but if the document doesn't say anything about property that's a guarantee, then you can return it um, uh, because, well, you'll give it to the lender. If he tries to collect, we'll go to Betin and they'll, try, they'll have to work it out. But you don't have to worry that he's going to collect from land that was already sold. What we see from this in the roundabout way is that according to the Bimeir, if you don't write that in, uh, if you leave out the clause in the loan document that says that the land is uh, a guarantee, then we do not collect from the land. Um, and that would contradict the Mishnah, because our Mishnah says if he tries to put a small amount, we ignore it like a scribal error and we assume it's the whole thing. Say whether the promissory note says that the land has a lien or whether it doesn't, still don't return it because Betin will collect from land either way. So Chachamim, that's Rabbi Yehuda. So now we have a question. The first clause in our Mishnah is Rabbi Meir. It says that he has to pay the 200 and you can't get out of it even if he um, doesn't write a ketubah or tries to uh, pay less. But the second clause, second clause where he doesn't say that all of his land is, has, has a lien on it, we nevertheless assume that's a lien, that's Rabbi Yehuda. So how could this be? So maybe you'll try to answer that. No, really, it could all be the Bimeir. And the Bimeir will make a distinction between a Ketubah, where, uh, where since in the Ketubah, this is a basic thing that all of the man's property has to be leaned uh, to the paying the Ketubah. The Bimeir would agree with that. And we would distinguish that between a regular loan, where not necessarily, sometimes people make a loan and they do lean their land, and some people make it, and they don't have a, uh, a guarantee from their land. So since a shtad, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't, he's not going to assume that you always do if you don't leave it, if you leave it out. But a kituvah, you have to have a lien of the land. So we can actually reconcile the bimeid in, uh, uh, in Baba Metziah with the second clause of our Mishnah. But the problem is, it's not going to work. Umi shanile, does the bimeid really make such a distinction? And the following Baraita, which is all the Bimeir, we're going to see that he does not make such a distinction. In the following five cases, one has a right to collect only from Mechorarin, like from Cherut, uh, from free, movable property, and not from land. Uh, the last two cases are going to be the one that's interesting for us, but we have to deal with all five. This is talking about a case where someone buys stolen land unknowingly he thought it was a, a valid purchase and he goes ahead and he improves the land and he produces a whole crop that's on the land that he's about to harvest and now the original owner comes and says sorry your sale was never valid because it belonged to me the guy who sold it to you was a thief so the owner gets the land back it's his 
and uh, I, who bought the land, have a right to go to the robber, or whoever, just, whoever sold it to me, and I can get back my money. Now, the purchase price I can take back from the robber's land even. But the added, uh, the, the added value, if I added irrigation ditches and whatever it else, and uh, fertilizer, so and the fruit itself that I caused to grow on there, that I also can claim from the robber. But in those cases, I cannot take his land for it. I can only take his movable objects. So that's the first two items. If someone has um, um, marries someone who already has children from a previous marriage, and in this marriage he says, I am taking upon myself to give sustenance to my his, his wife's son or daughter. Uh, that's fine. He can do so. And they can only claim his movable property. They cannot make a claim on his land, which is interestingly the opposite of sustaining one's daughters from his uh, property, which is only from land and not from movable properties. The word get here does not mean a divorce paper because the word get actually just means a document. In this case, it's a document of a loan. And where you write in the document that we uh, uh, this is not will not include uh, does not have a clause that includes the, a property guarantee. So there's no property guarantee. Therefore, you can't collect from the property only from movables. And similarly, a ketubah that doesn't say explicitly that all of the husband's property is lien to pay the ketubah. That also. Uh, the wife cannot collect from the land, but only from the movables. And that's the end of the Braita. Uh, so notice the last two. Who's responsible? Uh, who, who's, who's the opinion that says the fifth item, that if you don't write in a loan document that the land is subjugated to the loan, that we don't assume it's a scribal error and we have to collect anyway, but rather, no, you don't collect from it. Well, that's the opinion of Rabbi Meir against Chachamim. And yet, it also says here that if you don't write in the Ketubah that the land is uh, going to be have, have a lien on it to pay the Ketubah, then the wife cannot uh, cannot collect from the land, only from the movable property. And so therefore, we cannot say, even though it's a logical possibility, it's not a textual possibility, we cannot say that the Bimeir would make a distinction between the ketubah, where, yeah, we assume the land is uh, has a lien on it no matter what, and a regular a, a regular loan where he would say it's ta'ut sofer. You see, it does not make such a distinction, and so that cannot be the answer. And so we're left with our uh, challenge. We don't know who could be the author of our Mishnah, since the Resha sounds like it be Meir, and the Sefa sounds like it be Uda. So this is similar to the structure of the previous sugya. We saw where we say no one could be the author of this Mishnah. But now we're going to come with the surprise answer. Look how uh, the ingenuity of uh, Baal, the Baal of this sugya, that he can now go ahead and turn it around and say, you know what, actually I will make an argument that it can be either to be made or to be Udah. In the Mishnah that we quoted, that where uh, a person writes... 200 zoos, I'll say for a bit too long, in the Ketubah. But she at the same time writes a receipt that says, I received part, uh, part pay, partial payment, 100. And the Buddha said, then that's, that's fine. At the end of the marriage, the husband only has to pay the other 100. Well, that is different. That's a case where 
she he she wrote a a waiver that receipt. Whereas in our Mishnah, that's in our ours under under discussion, is where the guy did not write a ketubah at all, and she did not write that she received a partial payment. So to be that could make an, a simple distinction. This answer is actually kind of obvious. If he does not write a ketubah at all, we assume that this is a basic uh, fundamental condition that you have to pay the 200. So you're going to have to pay 200 no matter what. Rabbi Yudah will agree with that. If he writes a proper ketubah that says 200, so he did his thing, and she decides, listen, I will, I'm will. i willing to write a receipt that I, I, I received 100. That's totally fine. That's a separate document. The ketubah has the 200 in it, um, and therefore that is totally valid. Um, a ketubah that said only 100 would not be valid. It's 200. She just said you pay, have a receipt for 100. So therefore, the Biuda could be the author of the Resha, and the Sefa simply goes according to him that even if you don't write that all my land is uh, subjugated, it's subjugated anyway. The truth is that this is a much simpler path that we could have said all the way to begin with. And we uh, uh, seem, it seems that the Gemara purposely problematized Biuda and didn't make this distinction immediately, perhaps because, like the previous one, I wanted to say, maybe it's nobody, so that we can introduce the following one, that which is Rebbe Meir. It's much more difficult to fit the words of the Mishnah into Rebbe Meir, as we're about to see, uh, but it seems that the Sugya perhaps wanted the Halakha to follow Rebbe Meir, and therefore wanted to be able to explain the Mishnah, not alone according to Rebbe Meir, but also according to Rebbe Meir. So how can we do that? In the second case, where it says, even if I only say my small piece of land that's worth 100 is uh, is subjugated to the ketubah, um, and he doesn't write about his other land, nevertheless, the husband has to pay. Well, that chayav doesn't mean have to pay from all of his land. It only means has to pay from his free assets, from movable items, not from the other land. Now, this is not uh, not a, a easy reading of the Mishnah, because it sounds like the point is, even though he wrote that, still, he has to pay. Of course he has to pay for movable items. Why well, you wouldn't have to say that. Chayab means from all of it. But it's a possible interpretation. So therefore, the Bimeir possibly could also be the author of our Mishnah. All right. Now, the next part says, Lo katavla. He didn't write that he would redeem his wife in the Ketubah. He still has to redeem his wife. Amar Abu Dishmuel, Eshet Yisrael Shene'ensa, Asura Leba'alaha, Hashinan Shemma, if an Israelite woman, a Jewish woman, is raped, she is not allowed to go back to her husband, even if he's not a Kohen, not allowed, because we worry that perhaps even though she was raped and it was by force, and if it was really by force, she's allowed to go back. But maybe at the beginning it was by force, but by the end, perhaps she was willing. I don't think this is very likely psychologically and realistically, but theoretically, this is what the father of Shemuel says, um, perhaps she acquiesced, and if it's if she did, then it's adultery on purpose, and then she's prohibited to her husband. So that's what the father of Shemuel said. Uh, challenges him. He says, From our Mishnah that quotes the language that's in the, uh, the, uh, the standard Kitubah form that says, If you uh, should be captured, I will redeem you and return me as my wife, which means that if someone is taken captive, then they can be returned. They can go back to the husband. And according to the father of Shemuel, we always worry, oh, maybe she was willing. So Ishtik, uh, the father of Shemuel, had no answer. 
who asked the question in the first place, said about him, the following pasuk, Sarim asru b'milim v'chaf yasimu lefihem. Princes refrain from talking and laid a hand upon their mouths, meaning he's a prince, the father of Shemuel, and surely he has an answer, but he must have held back from talking and didn't give an answer to me. Maybe the answer was so obvious he didn't want to bother uh, ask, answering it. So might lememar, what would be the answer? We're talking about two different cases. He said his case where if for someone who was definitely raped, we know he was, she was raped, and then the question he has is, what was her state of mind? Father Shemuel says, perhaps at the end she was willing. Whereas the Mishnah is talking about a captive woman. A captive woman, we don't know for sure that she was raped. We suspect oftentimes captives will violate their, their uh, captors will violate their captives. But since we don't know for sure, we can be lenient. Perhaps she wasn't uh, violated at all. And even if she was, perhaps it was not willing at all. Good. Now back to according to the father of Shemuel, in a case where we know there was a uh, there was a violation, when we know there was rape, um, where can we have any case of rape where the wife can go back to the husband? There has to be such a case because we're about to show that the Torah brings such a case, assumes that there is a possible case. So how would you ever, if you always are going to uh, worry that perhaps she, the, the, this, the wife was willing uh, by, uh, at some point, then you can never have a case of a woman who's raped whoever can go back to her Yisrael husband. And the answer is, if there are witnesses that says she was screaming, uh, stop, stop, from the whole time, from beginning to end, in pain and she doesn't want it so then it's clear for sure she was not willing and then she is allowed to go back to her Yisrael husband this is an argument against Rava Shemuel's father is in disagreement with Rava Rava says that a woman is never willing uh, to be with her rapist. And if the beginning is honest, if at the beginning this is rape, then we know, we assume that the whole rest of it is also against her will. Um, and even if she says, uh, leave him, leave him, I, I, I want to continue. And even if she says, if not, that, uh, he, if he, that if, not, if he didn't force me, I would go and hire him to be with him. Even if she says that, Nevertheless, we don't uh, take that into account. The reason is because that would mean that her, her, her desire, her inclination took hold of her. We literally dressed her, um, her took hold of her. So uh, against her will, she, uh, she, she is saying, okay, let's finish. But that's not, called, that's not called willingness. Because the beginning was against her will, it doesn't really matter what she feels or what she says uh, during the rest of it. It's always against her will, and therefore she can always go back to her husband, unlike the father Shemuel, who says we worry that maybe she was willing. Tanya kevate de Rava, vehi lo nitpasa asura. Here is a brayta that supports Rava that a girl, that a girl is never willing, and even if she somehow feels willing, it doesn't matter because start didn't start off that way. Uh, so the Pasuk says, if a man lies with her and she is not forced, so if a woman uh, lies with a man and she is not forced, that's willing adultery, then she can't go back. Asura. But we can infer that if she was forced, raped, 
then she is allowed to go back to her husband because uh, But this Baraita Midrash makes a further inference that in this case, he, Lonit Pasa, she is prohibited, but someone who is forced is permitted. But there has to be some other case uh, that even though she is not forced, she, she's willing, nevertheless it's mutated. So how can you have a case of a woman who's willing and yet she's permitted to go back to her husband? If any case where at the beginning she is raped, even if at the end she is desirous of him, uh, you know, a, a handsome pirate, it doesn't matter. We just say her desire overtook her. It's not really her uh, that's saying that, and we consider that permitted, that, that that's uh, same as unwilling, and she's permitted to go back to her husband, which is exactly what Ava said. Tanya idach vihilonit pasa, another baraita, uh, another derasha on this, alternative, uh, from the same pasuk. Uh, if she is not forced, asura, because then she's willing. Uh, therefore, if a married woman is forced uh, by a rapist, then she is allowed to go back to her husband. We make the further inference that there must be another, since it says he, in this case, there must be another case where even though she is forced, nevertheless, she cannot go back to her husband. How can you have a, a, a woman who's raped against her will and nevertheless, she cannot go back to her husband. That's if she's married to a Kohen, because a Kohen can't be married to anyone who is with another man, even though she was she was not willing. And now a third derasha on this pasuk. It starts off the same. If she is not forced, she's prohibited. If she is forced, she's permitted to go back to her husband. But he teaches that there must be another woman that, even though she is not forced, she's willing, she still can, can go back to her husband. This would be true in a case where her original kiddushin turns out to be mistaken. For example, if they get married on condition. She says, I'll marry you on condition that you go and uh, and uh, finish Masechet Ketubot. And he doesn't. So then it turns out that the Kiddushin that she had were never actually Kiddushin. If in the meantime she was with another man willingly, then that doesn't matter. Since retroactively we say the Kiddushin was nothing, she was single. And so therefore there was no prohibition for, be, for her to be with that other man. And that would be true even if she, with the guy who, who was supposed to go study Kitubot, she had a child with him, and the child is on her shoulders. And then she said, oh, you never, um, uh, you never fulfilled the conditions, so that we were not married at all. So even if she cheated on him in between, it doesn't matter because the Kiddushin was undone to begin with. So that is a, another case where someone could be willing, uh, commit adultery willingly, but since uh, retroactively it was nothing, so she never sinned. Uh, therefore, in the future, she actually could go back and uh, marry the same guy. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll finish Yev uh, So that's even more impressive. All right. Amar Rav Yehuda. Hani Yehuda says some women that were taken by kidnappers are permitted to their husbands. Why? Amri 
Rabbanan Rav Yehuda. Haka mamtian lehu nehama. So the reason is because we assume that they are unwilling. They're forced. Uh, that's that's a case of rape. That's why they're allowed to go back to their husband. But the rabbis then ask Rav Yehuda, hold on. We see they're being kidnapped. They're held in captivity for a while. And in the meantime, these women are going and serving their kidnappers bread. Doesn't that mean that they like their kidnappers? They say, no, it doesn't mean that mechamat yid'ah. They're serving them because they're fearful. If they don't uh, serve them bread, their kidnappers will harm them or kill them. So that doesn't mean that they're willing, that they want to be with them. Hold on. These women who are, capti- who are captives, they are bringing arrows to the, ca- to the captors uh, to use, to shoot weapons. Doesn't mean that they're on their side and want them to win. No, they're doing that also because they're afraid that their captors will harm them if they don't. So that doesn't mean anything. On the other hand, if their captors let them go and they don't go home, they return to their captors when they can go free, well then, that's obvious that these are very handsome captors, I guess, uh, handsome pirates, and they want to be with their captors more than they want to go back home. Uh, then that for sure shows that they w- would are willing, and then they would be prohibited from being with their husbands. This law that we say that captors, we assume, are unwilling, their captors are unwilling, and they can go back to their husbands, that is only true if, it's, uh, if, the, if the captors are uh, a king. So a king, uh, uh, you know, the, the government, the emperor uh, takes someone, then we assume that they were, did not concede, consent to it. Uh, the reason would be because when a king goes and kidnaps someone and takes her, there's no chance that she's going to be treated well. She's not going to become a queen or anything. The king, he has big harem, and he's going to take her and throw her out. So that for sure is unwilling. No woman would want to do that. But if it's just a bandit, uh, then maybe she would be willing because she says maybe this uh, bandit guy could be exciting, adventure. She'll maybe uh, he will marry her, and so maybe she would be willing. Again, I don't know how uh, these uh, pirates worked back then. I can't imagine anyone today being willing, but um, uh, uh, who knows? Okay, hold on. We have another black that says the opposite, that it's when it's a common thug, then she is unwilling. But if it's the king, then maybe he would, maybe she is willing to be with the king. Okay, we're going to answer both of them. The kings is not a, not a challenge. We're talking about different kinds of kings. When you say that she would not be willing, that's talking about someone like a chashverosh, who went and he collected thousands of women from all over the, the country to have this contest. Only one's going to win. The rest are going to lose. They're going to go back home. So they no, they didn't want to do that. Uh, nobody wants to just be used and not be the queen. So that was forced, so they're allowed to go back to their husbands. Whereas, there was some guy named Ben Netzed. He was like the, the head of a mafia. Uh, he was able to gain a little territory, like uh, you know Taliban. And so, since he's a petty king, maybe, she says, maybe he will marry me. And uh, then I'll be treated well in this... Uh, uh, by him, so she, in that case, she may be willing, so she cannot go back to her husband. So they're relative kings. Listuta listut nakasha, and also the two statements in the Braithot regarding bandits, their opposite Braithot, are also not contradictory. Ha said one is talking about a bandit who is 
uh, a high-level bandit that he has his own little uh, uh, domain, and she would uh, she would uh, be willing to be with him. How about this Tuta Alma? But a common bandit, no, she would not be willing to be with him, and so that's why in the first one she is willing. She can't go back to her husband. The second one she is not willing, and uh, she can go back to her husband. Okay, now, Hold on, Ben Nesed was used as an example, both in the king case and in the bandit case. So what, what is he? Is he a king or is he a bandit? A bandit. Yes, he's both in. Compared to Hashverosh, he's a common bandit. Compared to a common thief, he is like a king. So everything is relative. Baruch Adonai Amen, Amen.